Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right on KPFT. Thank you so kindly for being here with us. We could not do this without you, folks. Anyhow, we are going to have a great, great show for you. Today we have two very special guests. Our first guest is uh, going to be Michael Nigro. He's a journalist. He's uh, a f- He actually contracted uh, coronavirus and he got over it. But he's somebody who we call a long hauler. In other words, in as much as he's COVID-free, he is still very ill. And it is something that folks don't understand. It's, a, it's how it's affecting a whole lot of people after they get the disease. So don't believe that this stuff is not as, as difficult as it is. It's not only deadly, but it can cause permanent damage to organs. And it can also cause a life of stress, not knowing exactly what's wrong with you. So we have to take this disease seriously. Unlike what our current president is talking about, unlike what a lot of the people on the right are saying, oh, just get the the disease and it'll it'll be okay. Oh, just get herd immunity and it will be okay, folks. It's not going to be okay for a whole lot of people. We have to protect our folks. The second guest is Ian Wafferwitz, who uh, Rifowitz, who's going to talk about uh, this president and what all of this means to our current society. So we have a great show installed for you, folks. Get ready, sit back, let's get busy. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis. Today we are honored once again to have Michael Nigro, is, who is an award-winning filmmaker, six times Emmy-nominated writer, director, and multimedia journalist based in Brooklyn, New York. His penchant for breaking news and social justice movements has put him in the forefront of some of the most crucial of our times, including crucial stories of our time, including Occupy Wall Street, Stand and Rock, the 2016 presidential election, Charlottesville, covering the immigration crisis in multiple locations in Mexico, where he's also received some stuff on, the Yellow Vest movement in France, the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, to name a few. His work has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, Vice, Intercept, NPR, Time, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, among others. He's a frequent contributor to Truthdig and a front, or former frontline correspondent for BuzzFeed news michael nigro welcome to politics done right that is a hell of an introduction thank you sir well i mean it's warranted if if, if it didn't happen it wouldn't be there right <laughs> right 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 but, but you know it, it is it is great having you but uh you know this we do a lot of politics but i want to take this more as a human story a story to instruct folks a story to encourage folks a story to tell folks look this is what's really happening in America today. 
And don't listen to the quacks out there that are that have ulterior motives. Listen to those who are going through it. Michael, you have uh, you developed uh, uh, coronavirus earlier this year. You got COVID nineteen earlier this year, and you thought you were recovered. And I saw a posting that you had on Twitter, and I said, Michael's story. We got to keep telling these stories because. You have the mass media telling everybody it's going to be okay. Things are just great. Uh, some talk about herd immunity, meaning that, oh, you get sick, you get over it, and everything is okay. Um, but there are these people called the long haulers. And it turns out you just may be one of them. So why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, your story of getting the disease, your story of recovery, and what you're going through right now. Uh, I am unfortunately in that category of a long hauler. And I developed the coronavirus in March, way back in March. It, and it, to even think back, I, like I have this pre-corona and post-corona. It's time is very strange to me now. When I went through my quarantine, um, it was a prolonged quarantine because I just never felt better, but then I, I wasn't positive. Um, and I figured I'd get better. My background as a distance runner, uh, marathoner, and then eventually into cycling. And um, before coronavirus, I was training for a hundred mile ride. And so I was in good shape and I've been an endurance athlete all my life. However, I just wasn't getting better. And I went through a series of doctors, um, virtual doctor calls and months went by and I couldn't go up the stairs without feeling like I had just run a PR mile. Um, I'd pick up cat poop <laughs> for, <laughs> my, and clean the glitter box and I'm out of breath. And I just kept going to these doctors and they just had no idea. One doctor in particular, after just all this frustration, I had finally said to me, look, we've, I've kind of moved on you need to get into this study at Mount Sinai and I'm going to try to get you into it. There's a waiting list. Now the waiting list is thousands of people, but I was lucky enough to get into it last August and they're running me through a battery of tests, everything from PET scans, MRIs, uh, pulmonary, heart, brain, uh, the things that long haulers are going through and what long haulers are going through, it varies. Um, some people just have constant fatigue, others have crippling headaches, other people have tingling in their hands, others cannot uh, catch their breath. Um, there's still loss of taste, loss of smell, uh, that kind of comes and goes. In fact, that happened to me about three months ago. I took a sip of wine and I'm like, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> My wife was like, this is really good wine. <laughs> uh, and it turned out that, that um, certain foods were starting to taste like gasoline. Oh. That, uh, that has waned. Um, but you know, my, what I do uh, for a living, which is I'm a photographer and I cover, uh, protests and protest movements and, um, and actions. And it's been a way of how, um, long haulers need to partition their time because when you exert yourself as a long hauler, sometimes your body just shuts down. And when I was in Portland, um, I did try to go out and cover the Portland protests um, in, uh, uh, September, uh, in October, mm -hmm. uh, September, I'm sorry. 
And um, I knew that I couldn't be out there all day. Um, I went to the Proud Boys rally that they had and I needed to really just partition my time. Unlike when I was at Standing Rock where I would be out there for 24 hours. Unlike when I was doing Occupy Wall Street where I'd be out all night. Unlike when I was at the Yellow Vest when you, you go out and you just shoot because you'd need to document these things and then you go home and you file reports. I just didn't have that. And, and what I mean by when my body shuts down, it's not like, oh, just plow through it like you would if you're in a marathon. I mean, your body shuts down and my legs just would feel, uh, I couldn't support my weight. And uh, my breathing was so labored that um, uh, I would just have to kind of sit and take a moment. But these are things that the people at Mount Sinai are uh, trying to figure out what is going on with long haulers. Why do relatively uh, people that really fall into a category of 20 to 40 years old um, have these uh, ongoing symptoms? And these are people who were in really good shape. They were all athletes. They weren't intubated. They weren't in the hospitalized, but it lingers. And I fall into that category. Um, and it's, it's, I wanted to go public with this. And I think this is why you ran across my postings, which is I'm around people who still uh, think it's theoretical, that think it's a hoax and they're behaving uh, and it's, it's, they're just coming up with different theories of why this isn't real, why masks don't work and it's infuriating. Um, I understand people's feelings of freedom. I want my freedom and you're taking away my freedom. I get that, but you can still be a decent person when, you, when you're talking in that way. You don't have to be, I don't even know if I can swear on the show. <laughs> Go ahead. You don't have to be an asshole about it. You can have your freedom and still be a good person. And I think this is what I am experiencing now is this kind of rugged individualism that is running rampant throughout our country where it's like, I can do what I want to do because I have the freedom to do it. I can go out and buy all the toilet paper because I can. You know what? What about the social contract that we have for each other? The unwritten one where I think we really need to lean on each other in these times now. And that's why I came forward. I need people to know this story and that people are really suffering. That is an important story. I mean, there's another, there's a New York uh, Times columnist. I think her name is Mara Gay as well. She was a runner like you are, and she got the virus. And it turns out that uh, uh, she may be a long hauler. I see her on TV all of the times, and she just isn't the Mara Gay of past. And uh, I have a cousin who is a, was a detective in New York. He got the virus as well. He has uh, several uh, multi-organ damage. And uh, so, uh, so, I mean, what we're looking at is, is serious. Some people seem to get it and not know that they had it before or whatever, but there are some studies out there as well that points out that even those that are asymptomatic and think they went through things perfectly, many of them, when you do scans on their lungs or other organs, they have sustained damage. They are just young and healthy, and that damage isn't quite yet seen in, you know, seen uh, until they, it will show as they get older. And of course, you know, with a lousy healthcare system, those will be pre-existing conditions once they find out, oh, you once had COVID. So sorry, pre-existing condition. Now, um, I think it's also important for us. You, you made something, a statement there about this rugged individualism that we're talking about. 
And I think it's a manufactured rugged individualism by a few irresponsible people on the top. That is my view as well, at least. Because what I think is, I talk to people on the left, on the right, in anarchists and otherwise. And you know what I found that people all care. People, when, they, when, they're, when they're within their own frame, it seems to me that they care. But what happens is they, they get these cues from the outside. Somebody, uh, Michael is trying to take away your freedom by suggesting you wear a mask. And whereas they would have worn that mask if they thought they were doing something just right, somebody has cued them that somehow wearing a mask is against freedom. Somehow this disease is a hoax. I, I, and, and I think that is why your story, I think that is why you did the right thing for saying, I'm a well-known photographer, uh, social media activist, activist in general. I need to tell my story because when it's real, that is when people start to take it seriously, not when it's just a, a phantom. I think you and I talked about this last time I was on, which is as a journalist, you don't want to be the story. Yes. And um, I talk about this with a lot of my photography friends where all of a sudden you have to step out in front and become the story. And I eschewed it for so long with this. I've been in other situations where, yeah, I was, I was the story. And why? Because I put myself in those situations, Charlottesville being one of them. Um, and um, I needed to tell that story of what happened to me there. This is um, uh, uh, just something that I, it just was boiling inside of me simply because I have friends and family and acquaintances who have gone down these rabbit holes that refuse to believe reality and will deny it until, it, I mean, it's, it's frankly, it's just foolish. Um, people who will tell me outright that masks don't work and they, they give you know, these cherry picked pieces of information and I'm like, like, how do you address this? I, in one piece I wrote, I don't know if you're familiar with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but there's this famous scene where there's a black knight and they fight. And this knight just keeps getting one limb chopped off, another limb chopped off until he's just a, a torso. And he's like, nope, it's just a flesh wound. And he's sitting there <laughs> and he's just denying the reality that he just lost, that he's going to die. And he just goes, okay, we'll just call it a draw. That is the way I feel. <laughs> When I talk to the people who are just denying what is blatantly in front of them and people who know me um, that uh, are denying the, what my experience and thousands of other people, 12 million Americans have this and they're denying it. We're not calling it a draw. We're calling that this is reality and they're just denying it. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, sometimes you would say things like, well, maybe if it happens to them, they will see the light. And it turns out that I, on, in, on the news recently, this doctor was saying he had a patient that was on his last breath. Astonishing. And he was still calling the virus a hoax. And, you know, when I see that, I, it's, it's not that I, I am, I'm saying they're, yes, they're devoid of reality. But also, I think they're devoid of having people who they find that in their trust circle to really say no this is wrong. And that's why I think more people in many different areas need to come out like you have and others have to come out and really say, this is what's happening to me. 
because it may not work immediately, but it plants seeds. And, and I'm, just from experience, I've seen so many seeds planted that just when the right notes hit, it is like it reaches that natural frequency in engineering. We call, you know, that point of a bridge that it, it destroys itself from undulation, you know, when it reaches that natural frequency, something starts to break. And I think, I think eventually, uh, I can only hope that eventually we get there. Your thoughts on that? I hope so. I think of what um, the writer and activist Chris Hedges oh. talks about, which is, you know, when the real world doesn't work for people, they devolve and they go into, into yes. make-believe worlds. And some of it's drugs, some of it's um, uh, uh, yoga, some of it's religion, where they, they go into these fantasy worlds because the real world's not working for them. And I think that's what we have here. And what I also feel is that it's, it's somewhat of like people going down these, these, these conspiracy theories, these rabbit holes, where it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's just a reverse Ponzi scheme where they create a, a, a community for themselves with anti-intellectual or just cherry-picked information. And they all gather around that cherry-picked piece of information and they all pile on. And they, all of a sudden they have a community where they all believe this one thing, which may only be partially true or not true or just bizarre, but they've created a community where that world works for them. And that's the danger of this is that they're not coming out, they're not expanding or even researching further. Things that are actually really easy to dismiss, they won't go there. Love Chris Hedges. Uh, a lot of his work recently has been pretty damn dark, but I mean, uh, uh, pretty dark and 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 that stuff about the real world isn't working for you so you you know you live within the fantasy world that makes a whole lot of sense but you know what uh the people who are running those fantasy worlds know one thing that those people who are following them are suckers it's like donald trump knowing that he's lost the election but he's going to collect a lot of money by writing that contract in such a manner that all the money that he collects goes directly into his pocket and a little bit to the rnc uh, it goes also, I don't know if you follow the QAnon um, stuff, but the QAnon is a, I call him a young punk who's making a hell of a lot of money right now uh, yeah. with that whole movement. I, I, if, you go to, if, if you go to their, their site, the first thing it brings you into is buying their stuff to make a whole lot of money of their stuff. And it is amazing that, uh, you know, so I, I mean, until, until we kind of cut the head off the the snake, if you will, and show it for what it is. I think uh, we're in for some, but I'm still hopeful that uh, most Americans, ultimately, this fantasy land that they live in, that we can make a better real world for them, that they may want to exit it. So, I mean, uh, give me give me some uh, uh, some closing thoughts about. Uh, well, before I get into closing thoughts, what have you been able to do in the last few months with your with your projects? So um, there's so much going on and leading up to the election was um, uh, like I could have gone out every night and I would have, um, but I had to pick and choose mm -hmm. just due to my energy levels. And what happens with energy levels with this is somebody described it as if you're a long hauler, you get four cups of energy a day. <laughs> and, and sometimes they're not even all the way full. Right. So you have to figure out like, okay, do I read? Do I go for a walk? Can I, can, can, should I go shopping? Because you just, all of a sudden you, uh, and then you can go into negative 
which has happened to me before where I've exerted myself way too much and the next day I can't move. So uh, in response to what I've been doing, I've been following a lot of um, some of the police brutality that has been still happening here in New York. Um, though, and of course I was following a number of these uh, caravans, these Trump caravans. Mm -hmm. when, you, when, when I bifurcate between the Black Lives Matter um, protest, 99% of them are masked. I would say 99% of them are masked. Yeah. And I got the Trump ones, 99% of them aren't On masked. Yeah. And, you know, so I, one, one of my family member, my was like, she's like, masks don't work. And I'm like, well, of course they're not working. Half the population's not wearing. <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, but anyway, so I've been, I've been trying to follow those and document those, um, those marches and then those counter protests. And, um, and also the police brutality that is still going on. They now have a new bike um, division and it's terrifying. They are all geared out with BMX gear and it makes them feel invincible. They use these bikes, they swing them around as, as, as weapons. And it's basically, it's basically a cage. It's a rolling cage for the protests. And if, they, if someone gets tangled up on that bike, they're, they immediately are surrounded by the bikes and then they are tackled and arrested because uh, they were resisting arrest or interfering with police activity. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you still, you still, you still going out there in the field and getting your stuff done. Trying. Yeah. I, I, it actually makes me feel useful and makes me, it gives me a, a feeling of positivity. Which are I you feel, go ahead. Sorry. Are you posting with any of the majors right now? Or are you just doing that and doing your thing? No, I file uh, right now. I'm filing with SEPA USA, and so uh -huh. then they put it out to AP and uh, Getty, and and so I'm able to get my my work out. And then I have a new website that I just put up, which is nigrotime.com. That I okay, so I'll add that to so nigrotime.com is up live and ready to go. Uh, live, ready to go, and trying to keep it updated. So yeah, I, I hear you, but okay. What 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 should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? <sighs> Well, it's a question I can't answer, which is like, where do we go from here? You know, how do we stay positive? How do we not get so angry? And frankly, Egberto, this is why I, I was getting so angry. I needed an outlet. I need, I, I, I was, I was just stewing at home with this stuff and I needed to put it out there and try to put out something positive. The first draft of what I wrote was just brutal. <laughs> and I had my editor wife look at it and she goes, you can't, this is <laughs> angry and i'm like well i am angry i'm really angry but um i think there's a way to position it and bring people into the fold and create these conversations i was shocked people didn't know what a long hauler what a long hauler was shocked and i mean this has been going on for eight months and um we don't know so i just think to continue to keep the conversation going i don't know where to go because i don't know how to begin these conversations with these deniers it's really difficult. I will listen to them and try to steer them in the right direction. But when you are down a rabbit hole, um, it's like Bugs Bunny is your best friend. I don't, I don't even know how to, how to well, have a conversation. I have a lot of patience. So I, I, I hang and I, I try to talk to them. And that's what I do. Um, look, Michael Nigro, it's been my pleasure to have you on the program once again. I think you're an asset not only to the movement, but an asset to this new, I'm going to call it our long hauler movement, getting that exposed out there. It is so important. Thank you for doing what you've done. 
And without further ado, you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much. I'm here with one of my one of my favorite guests, uh, Ian Reifowitz, a professor of historical studies at Empire State College of the State University of New York. He is the author of three books, specifically The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump. He also wrote the book Obama's America, A Transformative Vision of Our National Identity. I think that was put out by Potomac Books. And I'll have all these books in the list that we have here. And he wrote Imagining an Austrian Nation, Joseph Samuel Bloch and the Search for a Multi-Ethnic Austrian Identity. Uh, Reifowitz is also one of the most prolific contributing editors to Daily Coast. I've been honored to be on the same staff with him, write with him. He's just one of those all-around um, writers out there that knows what he's talking about. Ian Reifowitz, welcome to Politics Done Right. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Egberto. I love having you. I love when you have me on the show. I was going to say, I love having you on my show. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of the time. But my, my dear friend, uh, let me tell you, you wrote an article that sort of touched me, and I want you to kind of go over it with, with our audience, because I think it is important. Uh, the title of your article was, uh, was, or not was, the title of your article is Trump's False Claims of Stolen Election or original or an original and evoke a dangerous historical precedence. That is an article that I think needs exploring. Why don't you tell me a little bit about firstly, what got you into write, what, what made you want to write that article? And then let's go into the meat of the article. Right. Uh, so as a uh, history professor, and you mentioned my first book, which um, unlike my most recent books, my first book really, uh, you know, is set in, in history, in Central European history, and that's where my, my PhD training is, uh, Austria-Hungary, Germany, and that part of Europe. And so, in many ways, my intellectual journey is about the attempt to understand where real hatred comes from, the kind of hatred that leads to the kind of mass murder that you saw in the Holocaust. So, you know, as well as being a Jewish you know, a person who is Jewish as well, uh, th there's some personal and intellectual uh, motivation to understand that. And so one of the, uh, the key um, signposts in, the, in, in German history as they moved uh, towards, uh, you know, the Nazi takeover in 1933 was what happened at the end of World War I. And at the end of World War I, Germany was defeated by the, by the Western Allies. However, uh, elements on the right wing, uh, uh, elements on the right wing in Germany, um, the commanders of the Imperial Army, uh, essentially created this myth that the, 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 the military was never defeated in battle and it was instead sold out. And so, or actually the, the, the proper term is stab in the back and the German term is Dolstoslegende, the stab in the back legend. Uh, they were stabbed in the back by the politicians back home and specifically by uh, liberal and democratic and Jewish and socialist politicians. Uh, the German war effort was led through four plus years by a monarchy. It was called the German Empire. Kaiser Wilhelm was the head of state 
And actually, by the end of the war, the, the two chief military leaders were, were basically running a, a military dictatorship. That was uh, Paul von Hindenburg, who later became president uh, of, of Germany um, and was the second and final president. He was the one who actually gave power to Hitler. Uh, and the other was Erich uh, Ludendorff. They led the army in battle. The, uh, the Kaiser was their head of state. But two days before Germany actually surrendered, the Kaiser was overthrown. There was a democratic revolution in Germany. So that this new democratic government in the end had to put its signature on the, the armistice papers and the surrender papers. So the military commanders said, oh, it was them. It was those Democrats and Jews and socialists who stabbed us in the back right when we were uh, on the verge of victory or at least you know, holding our own or whatever. This is a complete lie. It's a complete denial of fact. And, that was what was going through my mind, or that popped into my mind as I was thinking about what Donald Trump was doing, denying the fact of his election defeat, saying that the election was stolen, saying that the election was stolen by liberals, by Joe Biden, who he's called a socialist. Uh, it, it hasn't, at least in the election, in the post-election phase, he hasn't, Trump hasn't been using anti-Semitic language directly at least, but we'll leave that aside for now. But he definitely has been talking about liberals and socialists stealing the election from him. And it just reminded me of this uh, parallel to this Dolchstoss legenda, the stab in the back myth in German history. And it's so dangerous because it's an undermining of our democracy. Now, what happened in Germany is th that the Dolchstoss legenda essentially um, took the legitimacy of this new democratic government system in Germany away right at its founding. Because throughout the, the 1920s, mm. uh, uh, mm. people on the right, including later, you know, within a few years, including Hitler, said, well, you know, the, the only reason, you know, Germany lost World War I, as I said, is, is they were stabbed in the back by the democratic politicians back home. And, and that's how they got their power. Democracy essentially only emerged in Germany by stabbing the military in the back. So the, so the democracy uh, is illegitimate. So and, you know, let, let me, let me right. hold you there for a second, uh, Ian. In, in order, what, what you're actually saying then is, Donald Trump knows for a fact that he has lost. We've always known that. Oh, he yes. knows that he has lost. But he wants to take a pound of flesh, not for revenge, but for the future. And you see, that is, that is different than what a whole lot of people are saying. A lot of people are just looking at this as Donald Trump being a child. Donald Trump just uh, can't feel about losing. What you're saying is Donald Trump is trying to make a systemic change in America in the belief that in as much as he has lost, that up and coming is that movement that he wants to say, the only reason you have lost is that you've been aggrieved. Right. Uh, and I don't, I, I'm not going to say that we know exactly what's going on in his mind, but we can certainly see that what he is doing is undermining our democracy. Let, let me, let, let me, I want to hold back a second right there. You, you, where you say you don't want to get into his mind. I never thought the man had a mind. I never thought the man had intellect at all, but he does have a whole bunch of very smart people behind him and he is being the figurehead. So I, I want to broaden that question a bit. And that question being, do you think the studied ones of the right around him actually know how to use him to push his buttons to get to what you're talking about? Wow, that's such a great question. <sighs> you know, I don't have a, I, I don't have an, a, 
a solid answer to that. What keeps going on, my, on in my mind is that he really is the driving force. Mm -hmm. He is the one driving this strategy. Uh, I don't believe there are a lot of people around him who think he, he who, who think he can win. Uh, you know, it turned obviously, you know, overturn the election. Um, I think, and I read a really interesting piece on Daily Coast today by, by uh, Mark Sumner, that he does believe that in, in undermining the legitimacy of the Biden election, that he is helping his own political prospects for a return to power in four years. Mark Sumner argued that, and I think it was a pretty convincing case. Um, you know, the, the, obviously there are differences between what he's doing now and what, and what I talked about with the stab in the back myth in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that what he's doing is, is undermining our democracy because you'll have tens of millions of people if he never, you know, if he keeps this up and never concedes and never says, all right, I really did lose, which he won't. You'll have tens of millions of people who are going to be hearing this, not only from Trump, but from this media, you know, this right-wing media, uh, even if it, you know, if it's, whether it's Fox News or these new, newer organizations like OAN or Breitbart or Newsmax, where there's a closed loop and they're all saying the election was stolen. Biden destroyed our democracy. So therefore, you know, we have to fight back to defend our democracy. So they, they won't even be thinking to themselves, we're undermining our democracy. They'll be thinking we're protecting our democracy. That's what's so scary. And in, in the same way in Germany, while you had people like Hitler saying, well, the democracy is illegitimate, so we have to fight to protect Germany. That's the same thing that people on, on the right who are devoted Trumpers are gonna be saying, well, we're, we're fighting to protect America. And that means we won't have a, a system that a, de a democratic system that is seen as legitimate across the board, at least not by however many, 50, 60, 70 million of, you know, people uh, there are going to be 72, 73 million Trump voters. I think a decent chunk of them, unfortunately, are going to follow Trump's lead on this. And I don't know where that takes us as a country. Does Trump intend to destroy our democracy? I don't think he's thinking along those lines, but I don't think he cares if that would be the result. And that's the sad thing or the, the scary thing. The, the, the thing about it, and Ian, is uh, I, I want to sort of see if I can push your, your thought process on the previous question again, given what you've just said as well, because I, I agree with you. I don't think that Donald Trump is thinking anything through. I don't, I think Donald Trump is that petulant kid who wants to say, I am not a loser. Uh, that petulant kid that knows he didn't get the, 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 the candy and will do whatever he can to get the candy. I believe that, but that can, that does not exist in a vacuum. In other words, he is the president of the United States, but he is a paper tiger. I used the paper tiger on, an, on, on a newsletter that I sent out today, and I got some pushback because the people who pushed back said, but look at how much damage he has done. A paper tiger, in, in effect, you're saying, can just be torn up, and, and, and that just has a lot. Of, and my thing is, no, but there are a lot of people out there executing for Donald Trump because, in other words, in his ineptitude, in his bravado, in the things that he does, it allows them to get the things that they want realized. And I, I, I want people to, and I'm hoping that people would go a bit deeper that Donald Trump cannot exist as just the president of the United States, just as much as President Obama was neutered in a lot of ways by that which surrounded him. And my contention is that which surrounds Donald Trump 
unless they are going to use that, how can he be? Well, yeah, I, I think he can't exercise power. And that, I guess, is what makes him to some degree a paper tiger, at least in this election process. He can't exercise the, he doesn't have the power to overturn the election unless election officials in the various states right. essentially, you know, don't do their jobs and don't uphold the oaths uh, that they swore to uphold on the constitution of their states when they took the jobs. But he can cause damage as a demagogue, right? Certainly he doesn't have to have uh, uh, governmental authority to rile people up, maybe to get people into the streets, maybe get people into the streets with, you know, with violent intent. Uh, we've seen that on occasion throughout his presidency. And the, you know, the question is, where do we stand three months from now, let's say after Joe Biden has been inaugurated and you have large numbers of people who don't see him as a legitimate president. And even if that's not enough, let's say something terrible happens and the economy goes into the tank, whether it's over COVID or something else. You know, it's one thing that to, to say that people in Germany saw the democracy as, as illegitimate, but it also took the Great Depression to bring the democracy down but the fact that the questions were already there were, you know, its foundation was weaker. The United States was able to survive the Great Depression, has been able to survive other crises. But my fear is that if Trump and his movement succeed in, in bringing into question the, 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 the legitimacy of democracy to the point where people say to themselves, I don't care about democracy at all. I only care that my guy is in power or that my side is in power. And that, that's more important than anything else. Well, then you're going to get violence. Well, that is, but the thing about it, Ian, is we don't have to ask if that is where we are because that is where we are. The fact of the matter is uh, that, two, uh, that two Republicans in Michigan decided to just go ahead and say, no, uh, we're not going to validate this election. The fact that we have two senators in Georgia who wants the, a Republican doing his job to quit. The fact that we have Lindsey Graham actively saying, get rid of those votes. These are all anti-democratic acts by people in power, not by the citizenry just saying, hey, we should throw those ballots out. The people who potentially have the power to do that. So your fear is already here. My question is, it's may, it may not be here in the majority, but it's here in, you know, 70 plus million people who decided that at all costs, they're willing to vote for a person like Donald Trump. Um, it, again, you, you said in your, in your piece that, uh, you know, there, there, there's examples in, in Nazi and we see what, Nat, uh, in, in Germany, and we see what Germany had to go through. Is this our Germany time? Well, at the end of the article, I said I was cautiously optimistic that we would not go down that road uh, as long as we didn't have a, a similar kind of economic shock as the Great Depression, right? But that's, you know, hopefully we don't have that. Hopefully we will never have that again. Um, but if you combined the underlying, let's say, weakness of American democracy in at least if you're going to say that you know having tens of millions of people seeing it as illegitimate is a weakness, and I think it, it I think it is a weakness. If you threw us into a crisis, maybe that number grows, and maybe those people uh, are have enough force 
to create some kind of large-scale mass uprising. Well, let me postulate. Let me postulate, uh, Ian, mm -hmm. because right now, economically speaking, we are at the precipice for a large percentage of Americans. People talk about a V-shaped recovery. No, what we've had for real, for real, if you look at the numbers, it is a K-shaped recovery. And a lot of the people on that downward K are Trump supporters. Those are people in West Virginia. Those are people in all these rural areas. They're the ones that are going to take the brunt of this downturn. I mean, if you take a look at in, in Washington, D.C., in Houston, Texas, and a lot of places, the people that are suffering are, are of the lower economic strata. But still, um, with, with if McConnell was somehow to maintain power and not passing things like um, that, that pay people to stay home uh, and all these type of issues and, and, and the recovery that needs to come forth that cannot come forth without demand, we could be there. It's easy to see us having a crisis, even if it's a crisis of the 50%. I, I want to remind you of something. Recently, it was asked, are you better off today than you were uh, several, um, you know, four years ago? And I was absolutely sure 60 or 70% of Americans would have said, no, I'm not better off. 52% of Americans said they were better off. Uh, what they, many didn't understand is a lot of them were better off because they were collecting unemployment compensation from their state and the government was giving them an extra 2,400 bucks a month. So they looked good for, for, the, for the duration of the time when that poll was taken. Uh, what happens when that changes? Right, at the end of the year, unless Congress takes more action, the, the extra unemployment benefits to the degree that they were even in, uh, kept going over the summer when the, when the $600 ran out, yeah. the rest of them are going to disappear at the end of the year. My hope, my hope is that even, even in the worst case political scenario that McConnell is, is successful in blocking any new aid, my hope is that we have uh, at, at, at worst, uh, another few months of difficult economic times, and then we get a vaccine going and, and things are able to, to, to come back to a good state. That would still be several months of suffering for large numbers of people. My hope is that it wouldn't be long enough suffering and widespread enough suffering that it would lead to something like civil war or, you know, or you know, mass violence in the streets. That's, that's, that's not, you know, that's a low bar to clear. That's not a good scenario, but I'm hoping that that, you know, if there was no vaccine on the horizon, I would, I mean, my God, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, so that's where I, I, I'm, look, I'm hoping that Democrats win those Georgia seats and, and that we have a Democratic Senate and we can do the things that are right for the American people. If we don't, there is going to be suffering. We need more stimulus. We need more help for people who can't and shouldn't be going back to work until we can get this crisis under control. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's going to be an uphill climb in Georgia, but I think if we, you know, we have a chance there. Uh, but Donald Trump is not helping, and that's what's so frustrating, right? Because we could have a president who uh, could recognize where things are and do what he what he's able to do to, to, to work on a transition. We could have a Senate where uh, the Republican leader says, all right, listen, let's do something. Let's do something realistic that we can do now, and, and, and we'll see what else we can do in January, but let's get something through now that, you know, as opposed to them making absurd demands where the Democrats uh, have no choice but to say no because what they're, what they're offering is, is uh, so weak as to be uh, 
unhelpful. But we're not there right now with this president or with this Senate leader. Now, um, I'm going to change subjects a bit. You wrote another article, uh, America needs a Biden landslide to avoid chaos. Let's make sure we get one. And the thing about it is, you know, I've been preaching that for a long time. In fact, I was prognosticating a landslide based on the, uh, based on the, the pain of the people, based on the activism of the people, etc. What I didn't see was on the right side, the amount of microtechnology being used to bring people out that I never thought existed. Now, um, we got, we did, you know, I think America fulfilled your request. They gave Biden a landslide. They gave Biden more votes than Biden or any other presidential candidate had ever seen. Unfortunately, they gave uh, the second place to Donald Trump. And we don't know where the hell those people came from. What are your thoughts? First of all, why do we always think that those on the progressive side need to have somehow more than a 50 plus one vote to determine that we are the victors? Right. Well, that, that, that's actually not what I was saying. I was making, more making a prediction that if the vote was close and there wasn't an a overwhelming landslide, that Trump would do exactly what he's doing now, that he would cause chaos. Uh, so this was, um, you know, my my hope that none of the states or uh, that that wouldn't that, that the electoral college wouldn't be close and you wouldn't have close states, which is exactly what we have now. Unfortunately, we don't need a land we don't need a landslide to have a legitimate victory. Oh no, um, no, I, I understood right. that from your article. I understood right. that from your article. But I'm saying it, it's been it, you, you hear it all the time. We need such a big victory just to say we've won. Well, that's because the other side is well, at least right now with Trump. The other side is willing to destroy democratic norms in order to achieve its goals. And so one, you know, the realist says, you know, well, we gotta, we've got to win by so much that there's nothing they can complain about. And that shouldn't be the case. That should not be the case. That's on them. That's on the, on the Trumpers and on those who are willing to, to, to violate, you know, and, and shred our constitutional norms. Not on us. Uh, as to you know where those votes came from, you know who knows. I, I do think that you know COVID certainly played a part. Uh, this was not a normal election. Democrats did not do the normal knocking on the door, get out the vote effort that they normally do. There's a reason why they do it. It works. We didn't do it because we didn't want to get people sick. But yeah, I must, I must I must push back on that. Again, Biden got more votes than any other president. In, I mean, we, we brought the people out. We yeah, just but, where the, those right. others came from. Well, but of course, population grows up with every election, so it doesn't really mean as much to say. Yeah, but I mean, look, we're talking from 65 million for Clinton to right. 78 million or more for Biden. That's right. That's it's impressive. It's impressive. I, uh, both sides managed to bring out a lot of voters, but there's no question Biden's win is impressive. He's going to end up with a popular vote margin that will be comparable to probably a little stronger than, in terms of percentage, uh, Barack Obama defeating Mitt Romney, which is seen as a you know a very very solid win. Right. We just have a system, unfortunately, that's not really that democratic, right? Because we have a Senate, not only the Electoral College, right, but we have a Senate that's not distributed according to the, to the actual representation of the votes. So we've got to we've win in 
but not just win, we have to win in the right ways, which is ridiculous um, and very frustrating. And, you know, we could, go, we could talk about, about ways to deal with that. But, you, you know, we have a system where the, the party that comes in second place often gets the power that comes with winning. Sucking. And that's, you know, that's not sustainable in the long run either. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, uh, I think, like I said, if for some reason Trump had pulled it out, and because remember, there there is a total of probably seventy something thousand votes right now, depending on how you look. If we look at Arizona, Georgia, and another state, and those were low margin states. If you look at what those states brought and how those could have tied the, let's say, tied the. Um, tie the vote and then Donald Trump wins because there are more states that are controlled by Republicans than Democrats. That would be a second consecutive win with much less than the popular vote after having a 2000. And uh, how the hell can we preach democracy around the world? That's right. Uh, you know, I think Wisconsin, Wisconsin was also close. If, yeah, he, he would have, if he, he could have flipped Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, he wouldn't even have to go to the House of Representatives. Exactly. Be the president. We have a system where one side has a decided advantage. And the only way to undo that advantage is to win by a huge margin enough to take the Senate, even though we're at a disadvantage. It's, you know, it's like a boxer who has one hand tied behind his back, but the only way he can get that hand untied is by beating his opponent with one hand tied behind his back. It's very, very frustrating. Yes. Uh, and, and it's not the easiest thing to change. And although I love Barack Obama, one of the tr true failings of, the, of his presidency was that when they had 60 votes in the Senate, or even when they had 59 or 58, that they didn't make some of the fundamental changes to the system that would have made it more equitable going forward. Uh, they maybe they just thought they were going to, you know, the demography would be destiny. Clearly, that's not the case. Um, the Democratic agenda is more popular. Democratic presidential candidates win more votes. It's now seven out of the last eight, eight elections. But until we figure out how to change the rules, it's going to be very difficult to implement our policy and, and our sadly, agenda. And sadly, the rules are so simple. One person, one vote, whoever gets the most votes win. Unfortunately, that is not what we have. Well, uh, look, it's uh, been my pleasure having you here, Ian. Before we go any further, what question would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? Wow. Well, I think I, what I would like to, to have had you ask me is, is how do we as progressives appeal to voters of all races uh, and in particular those who would benefit from our progressive economic policies and as well as from our progressive policies on civil rights and justice and, and do so in a way that uh, you know can reach all of these voters without either turning off one group or the other group and, and I think the answer to that comes from the research uh, of a person who I've written about, and that is Professor Ian Haney Lopez, who is a law professor at Berkeley. And he uh, has written recently, written a book called Merged Left, and he also has some terrific online resources under the, under the name, which you can Google, of Race Class Academy. And he says, listen, we have to avoid falling into the trap of, of 
of uh, arguing either that Democrats should talk about racial justice uh, only, or you know, and 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 um, make that our primary, you know, focus, the sort of moralistic argument, or that we should have a race-blind economic populist approach. And Professor Lopez says neither of those two are effective in terms of winning elections, or they're not the most effective. In fact, both of those messages often fall prey to the kind of dog whistle politics of the right. He says, what we have to do is we have to be able to talk about race and class in an integrated way. And the long story short is, he says that the message that works, and they've done research, you know, public opinion research to, to test these different messages. He says, this is what we have to do. He says, listen, you gotta tell voters that Republicans are out there pitching a racist dog whistle message in order to keep white and black and brown and uh, Native American members of the working class divided against each other. That's what the purpose of the racist message is. So rather than say, Trump's a racist, everybody who follows him is a racist, racism is bad, vote for Democrats. You say, racism is the tool of the economic elite that doesn't want you working class white voters to ally with working class voters of color. They want you working class white voters to be afraid of people of color, of immigrants coming across the Rio Grande. That's why Trump talks about Mexican rapists and whatever. And that's why Trump talks about uh, low income people coming to the suburbs. It's all about getting the working class whites to think that the real threat is from people of color. And then in the meantime, they don't recognize or they don't remember, these working class whites don't remember or recognize that the economic policies of the Republicans are totally designed at sucking the wealth up the economic ladder to benefit the wealthy divide and rule. So that's what Lopez says works. You got to talk about racism as a class weapon. Racism as a weapon to divide the, the white working class from the working class and other people of color. And the, so therefore you want to inoculate these white working class voters into recognizing the racist dog whistles as a, a, a lie and B, a way to attempt to, to uh, fool them or distract them from voting on what their real interests are. So that's a message. If you had asked me that question, that would be the answer I would have given you. And I couldn't agree more. In fact, um, while he did it from, as an academic mission, I did it as a, as a simple progressive, and I just wrote a book called It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. And that book covers exactly what you talk about, Professor, how, first of all, racism is a tool and you don't, you don't attack the perceived racist for being racist. You attack the system that brought forth what, uh, what's used to divide and conquer. And I covered all of that in the new book that I just released three months ago called It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing uh, uh, right Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. So thank you for giving me a chance to just do a little plug on my own book, but let's go ahead and talk to our audience about your book, which is The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump. Show me that book, Ian. I know you have it there now. That, that <laughs> is, folks, a must read. Ian is an acclaimed writer at Daily Coast, acclaimed professor, and he also wrote Obama's America, a transformative vision of our national identity as well as imagine, uh, imagining an Austrian nation, Joseph Samuel Blatt, and the search for a multi-ethnic Austrian identity. Ian Reifowitz, it's been my pleasure to have you once again on Politics Done Right. As usual, 
we've always come out knowing a hell of a lot more than when we went in. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy our conversations very much. Folks, please remember to call 713-526-5738 and make sure that we can continue doing what we are here to do. And that is to bring real news to you. That is to bring information not not colored by a corporate design. Please give us a call at 713-526-5738. And don't forget, you can also support us. Give us contributions at kpft.org. That is how we can stay vibrant. So give us a call or go to kpft.org and make sure that we are able to stay on air because this is the last, the last real community station in this part of Texas that extends all the way to the east and north. This is one of the last bastions. This is one of the last gems. KPFT.org, 713-526-5738. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right.